Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 20. I'm Daniel, here as usual with my co-hosts Ed and Ellie. Uh, Unfortunately for the second episode running, our producer and technical mastermind Liam is absent. We're starting to think he might be staging an unofficial strike of some sort. So that means our technical production capacity. To be fair, we pay him exactly not. We do pay him. <laughs> yeah. That's not true. We got him a we got him a nice bottle of whiskey, didn't we? Oh yeah, I rem- yeah, I remember. Yeah, which is more than we've ever bought for ourselves. <laughs> so he should be he should feel damn lucky. That's true. And Ellie, you have just outed the podcast as um, it's it, it surviving on the basis of, of unpaid servitude. <laughs> yeah. Producer, which I think is probably going to damage our credibility yes. in the in the movement. So, hey, 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 Liam, you, you can edit that bit out. <laughs> um, today, we're going to be returning to a format that we've used before on the show, and indeed that we used in our very first episode, where we compared um, a strike in London music halls in the early 20th century to the contemporary struggle of pitch house cinema workers. And today, we're going to be looking at the 1941 Disney animators strike. And then we're going to be looking at the contemporary organisation and struggles of workers in the video games industry and seeing what um, possible resonances, echoes and comparisons there might be. Um, We've got two excellent guests on the podcast today. We've got Jamie Woodcock, who's a socialist writer um, and activist, whose new book is Marx at the Arcade, which is looking at precisely that and the the question of class struggle in the video games industry. And we're also um, going to be hearing from Marianne Bijgalvit, who is involved in the games industry herself. She hosts the um, online show Left Left Up, which is about the politics and uh, class struggle dynamics of the video games industry. Great name. It is a great name. Um, And she's also an activist in the UK chapter of Games Workers Unite, which is a kind of worker organising platform for for workers in the games industry. So we'll be hearing from them um, a little bit later. Um, But... Before we get into the main body of the show today, I'm going to hand over to Ed for a news bulletin. Yeah, it's um, good news in the in dark times. So um, listeners might remember that we kind of uh, plugged uh, John Maloney's candidacy for uh, Assistant General Secretary of the PCS. We did in uh, our episode about rank and fileism. And um, John's actually won that election, and he's won it against uh, a candidate from this kind of union establishment and also a sort of uh, long-standing uh, candidate of the union's uh, official left. Um, and not long after that, a couple of weeks after that, um, in the UCU, the University and College uh, Union, um, Joe Grady has recently won uh, general secretary, and she was a candidate who we, we heard from uh, Rian a couple of episodes ago, um, who was involved in her campaign. So she was also a sort of rank-and-file candidate, and also won... Um, against a candidate from the union bureaucracy and a candidate from the established union left, so kind of similar circumstances. She's Joe Grady. Yes, she's the real Grady. All the other <laughs> Joe Gradys are just imitating. So won't the real Joe Grady please stand up? Is that because it rock Grady rhymes with Shady? Is yeah, that yeah, that's also, the, I, that's I, the my joke. My favourite bit was when you nearly forgot the lyrics. Well, <laughs> that's it's quite an old, it's quite an old. <laughs> younger listeners might not even get the reference. Did Did you decide to, to to do that just off the cuff, or is that something that people have been? No, I saying? just, I just, I just made it up. Just well, thanks. That's 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 Ed's idea of a of a kind of contemporary cultural, cultural reference. So twenty year old will be relevant. To, to younger people. Yeah. Well, and, and, and ideal that we're doing that in, in an episode about um, 
the video games industry. So, but yeah, no, it's good to see kind of rank and file initiatives succeeding uh, up to a point in in various unions, and more to the point. It's proof that the endorsement of the Labour Days podcast is what swings union elections <laughs> in Britain, uh, in the contemporary trade union movement in Britain. So, uh, you know, we can... Uh... Yeah, if there are any other candidates for um, union officer positions who want to uh, come to us for yeah. an endorsement... Get yourself on the podcast. I think the evidence shows pretty conclusively that, uh, as, as Ed says, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Labour Days what, what wins it. So... Uh... All, all comers welcome. Um, so thanks, thanks for that uh, news update, Ed. I'm now going to pass over to Ellie for a new feature on the show where we're going to be uh, hearing from some listeners. We've talked amongst the, the hosts previously about the possibility of trying to um, engage with the listeners um, a little bit more. And um, this is something that, that we're able to do today, uh, because, largely because one of you uh, got, got in touch um, un- unbidden. We uh, It's should say this in advance that this is a real genuine piece of correspondence from a real genuine listener this isn't something the jury's still out is, is, it, uh, is, it, yes, it is we'll we'll leave we'll leave you guys to decide whether whether this is uh, genuine or not in this era of fake news it is completely genuine and and absolutely not written by some sock puppet account that i've created despite <laughs> scurrilous accusations to the contrary so this is a real a message that we received via our Facebook page from a listener in the United States that we look it is real Ellie and if you keep if you just keep like laughing like that people are going to think it's not so you're, you're undermining the bit yeah it's a real it's a real letter from a real person I think the amount of times that you've said that is now planted the seed of doubt in everyone's mind okay all right fine look ellie's gonna read it out obviously no one is now going to believe that it's real. it is real so what, so what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to get this correspondent on the podcast next episode to, to prove that it's real so anyway with with that introduction entirely mangled it's over to, it's over to ellie for some correspondence from a listener Okay, yeah, without any further ado, welcome to Listener's Corner. Yeah, so a few days ago, I think on Wednesday, we got uh, a message from JP Kadebeck, um, and he wrote to us, as Dan said, from the United States, and he said, just finished listening to your Dobbs episode. I'm a Teamster in Chicago, and I loved it. It may have been a throwaway line, but the comment about Teamster stress toys really made me laugh. It's exactly what my bureaucratic local gave out during our last contract campaign. Um, they stamped it with too blessed to be stressed, um, which is hardly a militant message to send to the bosses. You also mentioned at the end how great you think Teamster Rebellion is for groups to read for practical lessons for today. You're too right. Just this last year, a few of my friends from Oakland, California, got some militant teachers and socialists together to read it, and it inspired them to organise flying pickets and, and a strike paper in advance of a large teacher strike in the city. So, okay, all joking aside, um, we'd really, really like to thank JP for, for sending us that message. I know that I was deeply touched when I read it, um, and I found it really really gratifying to read um and he is a real person yeah um, even though that is exactly the sort of message that dan would make up <laughs> to to vindicate his incessant lobbying for uh, everything teamster it's, well it's i mean look you know, pe- people can people can draw their own conclusions um uh about the origins and provenance of this message but look as as ellie said and all joking aside um it was extremely gratifying to read that and it's good to know that 
the stuff we're talking about is finding an audience amongst working class activists and is connecting with people's um, struggles and to hear that um, some socialist trade union activists in the States organised the reading group around Teams of the Rebellion and were inspired to um, uh, produce a strike bulletin and organise flying pickets off the back of that is um, really, really fantastic to hear. So thanks to JP for writing in and if anyone else wants to send us a message, either um, praising something we've done or excoriating us for something we've done or haven't done, um, you'd be very welcome to. And obviously, we're only going to read out what things that praise us. <laughs> it's good to know that we're not just uh, sort of shouting into the void, isn't yeah, it? And, uh, yeah. Good. So please do get in touch with us uh, with anything, anything that comes to mind. Okay, we're now going to move into the, the, the main body of the episode this time. And something that we've returned to a few times on the podcast previously has been the idea of looking at industries perhaps that are, are not considered a traditional sites for worker struggle and for trade union organisation. Part of the kind of message or the arguments that we really want to put forward on the podcast is that um, this, despite uh, changes in the economy or changes in the shape of various industries, um, the idea of workers' organisation and, 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 and trade unionism um, remains very relevant. And uh, we thought that an interesting uh, uh, potential industry for that kind of focus might be the video games industry, which um, is a site of, of burgeoning workers' organisation, is of increasing economic and cultural significance. Um, and there are um, activists in the kind of labour movement around us who we thought it would be interesting to talk to about that. So given the format that we've used a few times before, looking at um, contemporary worker struggles in a sort of non-traditional industry and then reading them against or comparing them to um, historical struggle, which we did with the very first episode on the music hall strike and the Pixar cinema worker strike, and then again with the McDonald's strike and the 1912 New York waiter strike, um, we thought that the 1941 Disney animator strike, a very significant strike, but perhaps not hugely well known about, would be a, um, a good historical episode to um, present in, 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 in the show this time and maybe draw out some comparisons with some of the things we anticipate talking about in terms of uh, the video games worker struggles. So where we're going to present this is we're going to tell the story of that, of that strike based on research and a presentation written up by um, Holly Smith, part of the Labour Days team who um, does a lot of that research work for us, which Ed and Ellie are, are going to present. And then afterwards, we'll have some time to discuss what might be some of the important lessons and takeaways. Walt Disney was an innovator, a visionary, an artist, a boss, a strikebreaker, and a union buster. In 1941, his studio was world-renowned and flourishing. The Three Little Pigs and The Country Cousin had won Oscars, and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio had cemented the golden age in animation. Yet, with any product, these films required labourers. At Disney Studios, storyboard artists sketched the plot, and supervising animators detailed the characters' movements. Assistant animators filled in the frames with background drawings, um, and all these initial pencil drawings went to the inkers to be transferred to celluloid. These, these were then given to the painters to colour, and finally, the cameramen shot all of them at approximately 20 drawings per second. Without the efforts of these craftspeople and artists, the films could not have been made. Yet they were the lowest paid in the industry, with long working hours and mandatory Saturday working, and all were non-unionised. 
After the success of Snow White, Disney constructed a new studio in Hollywood, but only those earning over $100 a week were permitted to enjoy the new on-site facilities, such as the restaurant, gym and steam room. Uh, the inkers and painters were only on $16 a week, so obviously it was restricted to a small number of workers. During the making of Snow White, the cartoonists had been promised big bonuses on completion and had worked unpaid overtime to make sure it was completed. Yet they were never received. The bonuses were never received. Um, this angered a man with a fantastic name, Art Babbitt, <laughs> who, despite being one of Disney's top artists and enjoying a two hundred dollar a week salary, wanted his colleagues' work to be recognised and rewarded. At the time, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATC, which still exists in the states, was the biggest union in Hollywood. And it was also the most corrupt with their West Coast organiser, a member of Al Capone's gang. We've talked about sort of yeah. mobbed up American trade unionism before in, uh, in on the podcast. Um, Art Babbitt wanted to unionise Disney, but he didn't want to do it with a corrupt union. Uh, he approached Walt Disney himself. Uh, he was sent to Disney's chief legal counsel to seek recognition. And an organisation was kind of drawn up called the Federation of Screen Cartoonists, uh, Babbitt set about having meetings and signing up his colleagues. Uh, this federation was certified by the National Labour Relations Board, which has been uh, been brought in by FDR as part of his New Deal reforms uh, in July 1939. And Babbitt and the rest of the federation's committee arranged for a meeting with Disney to attempt to negotiate a pay rise for the Incas and painters. Uh, they found out their union was not, in fact, independent and did not have a contract. It was a management controlled body and they'd been set up by Disney and his and his cronies. Uh, without a contract, they were powerless. Elsewhere, it seemed most jobs in Hollywood were becoming unionised. Disney received a letter from the Screen Cartoon Guild, who just signed a recognition contract with MGM Studios, informing him that they now represented the majority of Disney artists and demanding that Disney signed a contract. Disney begged Babbitt and the others on the committee of the previous federation to re-establish it to stop the guild. Instead, Babbitt started attending guild meetings and soon became their branch chair. Meanwhile, as a result of the war, Disney's profits were taking a nosedive, and he had to seek out loans from the Bank of America to keep the studio afloat. To get them to agree, he had to lay off a huge number of workers. At the same time, his senior managers were attempting to rebuild the Federation in an attempt to shut out the Guild. In May, Disney laid off 25 Guild members, including Babbitt, so the Guild voted to strike, and more than 300 members marched on the studio the next morning demanding recognition. The pickets were held 24 hours a day and produced what must be the most beautiful strike propaganda ever produced. If you imagine a workforce of animators on strike, <laughs> they're obviously going to create some fantastic placards and... Um, We'll put a link in the uh, episode description to uh, photographs of some of the uh, yeah. sort of uh, Mickey Mouse on strike and all the all the all the sort of artwork that they produced. Um, the strike took place during the making of Dumbo and caused a complete halt in the production. Um, later, the strikers would feature in the film as clowns at the circus asking the boss for a raise. In a subtle piece of Disney propaganda. Yeah. Solidarity for the Disney animators poured in from across Hollywood. Warner Brothers Studios were nearby, and cartoonists from there marched to the Disney pickets dressed as uh, French revolutionaries, and a sympathetic cafe near the studios served the strikers a meal a day. Any cinema showing Disney films was picketed. Developers at Technicolor refused to process Disney films. 
newspapers withheld Disney comic strips. Mechanics from a nearby airport guarded over the strikers' tents and camps with um, wrenches. Artists from across Hollywood put their talents to arranging strike benefit events, holding fairs, cabarets, magic shows, all to raise strike funds. The strikers' demands were for recognition agreements and a closed shop, wage increases, bonuses, and better working conditions. After nine weeks of all-out strike action, Walt Disney left to conduct a tour of Latin America, and the NLRB mediators arrived for arbitration. They ruled in favour of the strikers on every count. Salaries doubled, a 40-hour work week was established, all strikers got 100 hours back pay, and all artists were given screen credits. The Screen Cartoonist Guild now represents 90% of Hollywood's animation workers, and Disney has been a union shop ever since. Okay, so that was the story of the 1941 Disney animator strike. Thanks again to Holly for um, researching that and writing up um, that kind of narrative that um, Ed and Ellie have just shared with you. I'm going to take a little bit of time now to discuss um, some of the aspects of that story that resonated particularly with us, some questions it raised, some um, comparisons for um, our own situation. Um, so, Ed, I think you wanted to um, mention an aspect that... Uh, resonated with you and and also in terms of um, some of the experiences of the picture house strike yeah well it's the kind of um uh, the element of there being a sort of company union and a, versus a real union so in the, in this case you have the uh, the federation which is the company union mm. and the guild which which almost sounds like it should be the other way around <laughs> but the guild which is like the the real one and uh, obviously in uh, in the picture house as as we sort of touched on i think right in the very first episode when we were talking about that dispute uh that employer had a kind of staff forum and a lot of employers do mm. um as kind of uh, sort of like why do you why do you need your own union we've got kind of we've got mechanisms here for your voice to be heard sort of thing you know you've got we've got a kind of staff organization a staff association through which you can express grievances and all the rest of it um and obviously, in this case, these guys were like, no, fuck that. We want to have our own independent organisation, you know. Um, I think the other the other thing that, that's interesting is, is that the thing about the um, the, the guys from the airport um, coming and like, mm. watching over. Mm. The, and that might sound a bit weird to people, but you've got to remember, like, contextually, that um, in the 20s, 30s in America violence in industrial disputes was like pretty endemic and it wasn't beyond the realms of imagination at all that your picket lines would be uh, like attacked by some like company mm. thugs so the idea mm. of having kind well, of by pinkertons yeah they are private detectives or, or <laughs> whoever the idea of having physical protection on picket lines is uh you know there's been not Fortunately, not not many, but there have been a couple of instances in in Britain in the last few years where like people linked to like the English Defence League and various far right organisations have, have have come down and tried to intimidate picketers. So there's it's obviously not at the at the level that it was in the, in America in the twentieth century, but there is a question there of uh, how do you keep people safe during uh, during strikes and mm. stuff. You know, I think that that aspect. Uh, you're picking up there, Ed, about um, the solidarity provided to the strike um, by by other groups of workers. I think, I think that's something you wanted to um, 
bring out a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, just in general, I was actually very, um, I was very impressed by it when I was reading that. Um, so obviously it spoke about all of the other studio animators coming out, or a lot of the other studio animators coming out to join picket lines, coming from neighbouring studios, um, artists putting on benefit gigs for other studios, cooks providing, sorry, artists putting on benefit gigs for the strikers, and cooks providing, um, you know, hot food mm. for, for strikers as well. And I think one of the things that impressed me is we have this overall idea that the creative industry is so cutthroat because it's such a sought-after place to work in that actually it would be almost impossible to get people to show solidarity with each other. Um, and I think there's, I think, A, that's just not true because anybody who's ever tried to do any sort of work in creative industry and get paid for it knows exactly how difficult that is. Yeah. And I think if there was any chance that, that you could start turning the tide on that, mm -hmm. people would band together. But also, I think it might be something to do with um, something quite American that we don't seem to do, and that is they unionise their creative industries a lot better than we do. So they, in in the thing that we read out there, it did say a lot of the other studios were already unionised and they already had that culture. And I don't know why that is, and maybe one of you guys has a better kind of historical idea of why we don't tend to unionise our creative industries very well in Britain, but... In America, they do. So, for instance, there's a very strong writers' union. Uh, you often get like writer strikes and things like that, whereas that doesn't really happen here. And I know that there is a difference in the way we write as well. Like writers write in writing rooms in America, whereas writers tend to be freelance here, which makes it more difficult. Yeah, it's but, a bit more of a collective uh, workforce, I think. In in particularly in American television, mm. there's more shows that are written by like groups of people. Mm. Um. Whereas here you tend to have like the writer, like you say, sort of like yeah. plugging away by themselves, sort of thing. But yeah, there's a definite kind of. Um, I mean, we'll we'll probably we'll probably hear about this when we hear about like the video game industry and stuff. But yeah. there, there is a de there is a definite kind of um, a sense of like these workforces are very atomized. Yeah. They're very kind of like people sort of uh, plugging away by themselves, doing doing a job and it's hard to develop a sort of collective consciousness, but obviously it is possible to do mm. it because it, it has been done. Uh, I mean, the, the, the question of um, creative industries and film and TV specifically as, as workplaces and as sites of struggle is something we've talked about before on the podcast in our fifth episode. Um, we were talking about unions on screen. We had Clive Bradley as a screenwriter on as a guest, and we talked a bit there as well about some of the stuff Ellie's bringing up here about creative industries and create uh, creative industries as 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 sites of struggle and creative workers as workers and i think then as well we mark, remarked a bit on the differences between the british context yeah. and the american context i mean there are industry uh, there are unions sorry that in in this country in britain that organize in you know the, the creative industries that's a broad term but but within the creative industries so some of which are quite numerically strong i mean equity the actors union yeah. professional acting is kind of a closed shop still i think no, not as much as it was but it, um, cer it certainly was for a long time yeah. um you know the the big um big television workplaces back to will definitely have a presence there it certainly does at the, at the bbc mm. but i think ellie is ellie is right that um it's it's rare to see displays of militancy in this country from mm -hmm. from creative workers. I mean, I'm not aware of anything in British labour movement history 
that's analogous to the 1941 Disney animator strike or to the much more recent screenwriter strikes that we've yeah. seen in America. Yeah. Um, so there does seem to be a bit of a disparity in terms of the levels of militancy and struggle, if not, um, if, if, if not in terms of the levels of, um, of, of unionisation. But in many ways, I guess, like the, the... So this, again, is another example that we've sort of said time and time again on the podcast of, like, the idea that, like, oh, you know, trade unions, they only ever really existed in, like, factories mm. and in yeah. manufacturing, and, and now a lot of those industries have gone. So sort of does that mean that trade unions are no longer relevant? That's a kind of implicit argument that, mm. that people make. Um but thinking about it and, and sort of going back to the sort of description of how these cartoons were made, it does sound actually quite a lot like a factory yeah. production line, yeah. albeit one where, like, at least a subset of those workers are exercising, like, creative talent, yeah. creative labour. But a lot of these workers aren't going to be doing that. They're mm. just going to be sort of copying stuff or, you know, doing someone's given them a design of like this is the background for this scene you've got to kind but of that, colour it yeah, in yeah i mean that's not particular to animation though is it it's the moment you kind of um commodify anything you can turn it into a factory production mm. line. like literally anything i'm sure you get coding as a factory mm. production line now and yeah, yeah so it's i mean that argument spreads i would say across everything which yeah. i'm sure you yeah. are trying to get at yeah <laughs> I, I imagine, without knowing much about the industry, I, I imagine in terms of the number of uh, sort of human workers employed in the sort of modern day animation is probably a lot fewer than it mm. than it would have been in the forties. Because I imagine a lot of it's been kind of automated in the in the in the meantime. But there there is there there does it does sound like quite a sort of factory based uh, system mm. with the with the sort of studios and the various the stratification of the workforce and, and all the rest of it you know and uh, I, I wonder I wonder how perhaps how similar some of the uh, the video games sort of uh, industry is now in terms of like a skilled layer of workers or in terms of a uh, a, a number of impl- sort of influential employers that employ large numbers of people versus kind of um maybe contract workers further down the line sort of thing you know so it's it's interesting i think a lot of that um a lot of sort of creative industries employment is and always has been kind of similar to the like you you have a kind of nucleus of skilled workers and around them you have a kind of much broader layer of sort of contract Mm -hmm. workers and people that are on much less stable conditions and mm. contracts and stuff like that um it I'll, I'll give our listeners now a small a small kind of um peek behind the the curtain of, of, of our uh, somewhat shambolic um production organization if, if you haven't guessed already from the way we've been um posing our comments about what we might hear about the video games industry that's because um, we're yet to record the interviews with um jamie and marianne so they're going to be recorded and um Kind of cut into the the, the podcasts. Um, yeah, and there might be there might be no relevant comparisons at all. So we're so we're, we're kind of we're sort of we're hoping that some of the the kind of comparisons are going to emerge from that um, emerge from that uh, sort of organically. Um, what one thing I'm quite conscious of 
and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know a huge amount about the video games industry and worker struggles there, and that's why I'm looking forward to speaking to um, Jamie and Mariam and learning about it. But some of what I am aware of, which I think is in, potentially interesting to talk about in, in terms of comparisons, is that um, worker struggles and demands and the kind of platforms they've been developing, the, you know, the, the political platforms, the platforms of demands and so on, have focused not just on what we might call you know, immediate economic issues around wages and hours, there's wider issues about um, kind of conditions in the workplace relating to things like um, sexism and, 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 and gender and, and race and representation and diversity. But also, even beyond that, there have been kind of worker-led sort of struggles and, 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 and worker-led um, discourse around the kind of content of the games mm-hmm. um, and, and games workers challenging what might have tended to be, you know, sort of, sex, kind of sexist content that's being, that's being made in games. So there's a whole discourse there about games workers not wanting their labour and their skills to be used to make a product that they think is kind of socially damaging. Mm-hmm. There, there's so there's a, there's an interesting possible resonance there as to you know look this this Disney animator strike is 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 about economic demands, um, and it it would be interesting to know whether there was any development in that kind of direction of like okay well look we our labour is producing a kind of cultural product that has a huge cultural impact do we maybe have something to say about that as a union I mean it's complicated terrain that. In, in a way, there are some echoes with the stuff we talked about in our, I think, episode nine, which was about workers and the environment. And we talked about the Green Bands movement of construction workers saying, we don't want to work on an ecologically unsustainable mm. building projects. Yeah, and it's like, so it's, so it's not just about how much you're getting paid, it's about what, what are you actually making in the yeah, first place. I mean, the, yeah. the thing which kind of put me in mind of this and made me think, oh, I, I bet there's a, that, that would be an interesting kind of, avenue to go down was the little thing in 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 holly's presentation uh, about um uh, this yeah about dumbo about the strike interrupting the production of dumbo and then a little vin a little kind of cameo vignette in appearing in dumbo of, of clowns at a circus yeah. um asking the circus master for more money so you can see there in actually in quite a sort of unpleasant and slightly reactionary way you can see that whole dynamic of like workers labor and, de- and demands creative workers labor and demands kind of being reflected in some sense in the content yeah. of the product they're producing <laughs> um, which made me think okay well did did they try was there an attempt to sort of appropriate that or repurpose it in any way um and, and that that's I mean, that... I'm definitely planning to ask jamie and Mariam about given given a possible comparison there in, mm. in terms of um, mm. video games workers mm. today that kind of harks back, I think, a little bit as well to like when we had when we did the unions on screen uh, episode, and we talked a lot about like how, generally speaking, in like American culture, unions get more screen time, yeah. whether it's whether it's kind of positive or negative, or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's just like part of the, it's enough of the part of the fabric of life that that if you write it into a TV show, people understand mm-hmm. what you're actually talking about, whereas in British film and television, it doesn't seem to exist in that in that same way. Okay, so you've just heard our discussion there on the 1941 Disney animator strike. 
Um, we're now going to hear from our two guests for um, this episode of the podcast, Jamie Woodcock and Marianne Dijdarfeet. Jamie, Marianne, thanks for um, appearing with us on Labour Days. Um, the first question I wanted to pose, I guess, to both of you is if you could give our listeners a bit of a sketch as to what the games industry, particularly in Britain, is like. Um, how big is it? How many workers are we talking about? What types of workplaces are we talking about? What type of work? And um, what, what, are the, what are the issues that come up for workers? So one of the difficulties when we look at the video games industry in the UK is there's actually quite bad reporting in terms of how big companies are, uh, how many people are employed and so on. So one of the estimates I've seen is uh, over 3,000 video games companies. Um, But this differs a lot in terms of the size of companies. Um, So you have huge multinational companies like Rockstar, um, based in Edinburgh, um, big what are called AAA publishers that make games for, for Xboxes and Playstations and so on. But then at the other end, you have very, very small studios. So they might have you know, three people, half a dozen people or so on. So really what categorizes the industry is a huge diversity of kinds of workplaces. Um, so some of the people we've been organizing with uh, work in a workplace with 1,000 people, some with four, um, which has very different dynamics for how you relate to your boss and so on. Mm-hmm. But one of the estimates is around 40,000 people work in the games industry in the UK. Um, so it's both huge and then also tiny compared to other kinds of work. Uh, that's about the same as the number of Uber drivers in London. Um, but what's worth thinking about is some of these companies, so Rockstar, uh, who made the GTA game, that is the most profitable media commodity ever made. Um, it made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. But it was both made in the UK and also not really made in the UK. It was made all over the world, studios uh, all over the place. One of the really remarkable features uh, is how many tax breaks companies get in the UK. So it's a really, really boss-friendly environment in the UK to start a studio. And so there's been a huge growth over the past few years. Yeah, it's also been fascinating to see, especially in the last couple of years, a huge push especially here in the UK, for uh, games to be taken more seriously as a cultural form. So we've seen a lot of uh, exhibitions of gaming objects as such at the Victoria and Albert Museum, at the Barbican. So really, uh, you know, whereas a couple of years ago, it, it did seem to be a very sort of stereotypical you know, white male industry, there is a huge uh, process of diversification and push uh, towards this medium being taken seriously. Uh, yes, in terms of work conditions, I'd say even though at least maybe 10 years ago they, these were fairly secure full-time jobs, more and more we're seeing introduction of zero-hour contracts, freelance work, outsourcing, uh, speculative labor. So whereas I'd say, again, a decade ago, this, these were fairly secure jobs. I think if right now we don't begin to organize, and thankfully we already have, um, the security in these workplaces are only going to reduce. Um, when we looked at the Disney animators' strike, we were quite struck by how, even though that's a very highly skilled, almost artisanal type of job, the work conditions that a lot of those animators were working under was, were basically the conditions of a factory assembly line. Um, so could... could could you say a bit about that dynamic in the um, in the games industry? You've talked about the diversity in terms of the size and type of workplaces. I think game designing is a, is a job that a lot of people would consider to be extremely creative, again, almost kind of artisanal or, or at least artistic, but is, it, are there some of those kind of chain-to-your-desk factory-type conditions in the games industry? 
Absolutely. As with most workplaces, you know, there are the the, the unsung heroes that do a lot of the most difficult labor. So we're talking about QA testers that are actually making sure that the game runs, and um, as well as you know the the, the designers of or, or like the developers of the engines, etc. Uh, however, what makes the games industry quite interesting is that. Um, the, the relationship between the, the player themselves and the creator a lot of the time is actually very, very active because we do have these star game developers, right? So a lot of the uh, game makers in the UK and across the world have huge online social media followings mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, sort of, and they can hear a lot of the opinions or sometimes abuse in terms of their, um, in terms of their Product making as such, and uh, but so in a way, you know, we and we will also talk about harassment uh, in the future. But so there is a lot of social capital within this industry, and that's something that um, I think a lot of the time is another issue why we sometimes struggle to recruit um, people because they are worried to challenge this as such, right? Because they feel like it was has been like a huge. Uh, they, they just feel extremely lucky to be part of this industry. Uh, but yeah, as with any, uh, I guess, industry, there are, you know, there are the people in the upper echelons and obviously the bosses and a huge swathe of people that are, are, yeah, creating, actually making the games happen but are not that heard of and are working in very precarious conditions indeed. Mm. So you, you've already started to, get, to give a sense there as to what some of the main workplace issues are that... Um, Games workers experience. Do you say a, a little bit more about what, um, what what they are? What are the issues that workers have started to organise around? And then maybe, Mariam, you can tell us a little bit about the forms those organisations have started to take. So I wrote something uh, three years ago now, in 2016, because um, I was doing I was working with some video games uh, developers on a project. Um, and we got talking about their working conditions and I kind of wrote this short article saying why hasn't there been organising in the video games industry yet and it's one of those lovely moments where like I look back now and like it's wrong <laughs> I got it wrong um, but what I said was there are two main issues uh, and this was from speaking to games developers at the time that there is a culture of long overwork or as it's known in the industry crunch uh, and institutional sexism and problems with diversity uh, and at the time I said, you know, these are clear issues that could be organised around, but like it's not there yet, maybe it will happen in the future. Luckily we were proven wrong only a couple of years later. <clears throat> and I think the factory question is a really good way uh, of thinking through what crunch means, mm -hmm. is managers would love the idea of a factory that makes video games, that churns them out at regular intervals, just in time for the holidays, aligned with their marketing budget and so on. The reality is, Games are much more complicated than that. It's very difficult for managers to estimate how long it takes to make a huge game. Um, and so what tends to happen is towards the end of the development cycle, people are expected to work 70, 80, 90, sometimes even 100 hour weeks, literally chained to the desk, mm. you know, provided with pizza and Red Bull <laughs> or whatever, but trapped in the office for these huge periods of time. And this is something that like, People, you know, when people were analysing factories, they understood what this meant. This is an extension of the working day mm -hmm. that allows you to exploit more surplus value from workers. So, like, Marx wrote extensively about this. And so we can think about what that means uh, in games development companies. It means they're making huge amounts of money by further exploiting people by making them come to work. Um, and this is a kind of clear workplace demand. Mm -hmm. So, Mariam, maybe following on from that then, um, work workers have been organising in the um, 
games industry, you're involved in one of the kind of forms that organisation has taken. So do you want to give us a bit of background to that? Sure. Uh, I also have uh, also had a moment. I think two years ago, I wrote an article about like actually how we need a union in esports. I actually thought it was going to come from esports first, just because there seemed to be well, just clearer, very, very like clearer abuses as such. Because yeah, I mean, crunch in terms of practicing as such. But Do you so, just yeah, want to explain briefly what esports oh, is yes, for, for any. Uh, so uh, of course. So. Uh, Electronic sports is a form of, of competition uh, where uh, professional e-athletes <laughs> or professional gamers, I suppose, are competing for um, for trophies, for huge sums of money. We're talking millions in in in, in various video games, and uh, the, the the global uh, the, the global revenues for these are now in multi billions. Uh, in, in multiple billions, and uh, there are huge 10,000 people stadiums that get filled to to watch the finals for League of Legends, etc. And um, yeah, it now has become a, a fascinating and ever-growing sport with a lot of celebrities in, uh, investing money into this realm. Uh, however, again, a lot of the time we see um, con uh, contracts written up, uh, really um, dr drastically abusing the actual the actual athletes and it, it tends to be the companies that are sponsoring the team and or managers that keep the money. Uh, so yeah, to wheel back to uh, Game Workers Unite, which actually we're really hoping that we'll be organizing esports workers at some point soon mm -hmm. as well. Um, it, it, it really came out of nowhere. This is a beautiful story of people just really being fed up. Um, in March 2018 at Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, um, a, a, a a game developers association, international game developers association, which is pretty much a lobbying uh, organization uh, made out of um, fairly high-end uh, games industry workers, uh, decided to um, to to run a a, a fairly anti-union panel discussion during this event, and for the first time, I'd say in the 50 years of. Of, the, of this industry, people really came together in real life and were like, we're having none of this. So Scott Benson, the creator of an incredible award-winning game, Night in the Woods, created the logo. A website was made, Twitter account, hashtag GameWorkersUnite started, um, started trending during GDC. And what began as just like a, a shutdown of that particular, that, that particular panel discussion has now in the space of 15 months, absolutely exploded. We have over, we have 27 chapters in five continents. Uh, we have hundreds of people of people organizing, and various different chapters are getting closer to to legal uh, unionization. And obviously, and the most important date to, uh, for this movement came at the beginning of December, when Game Workers Unite UK became the first legal trade union that has come out of this movement. Uh, that is now part of the incredible independent workers union of great britain um, and the rest is history <laughs> um go ahead yeah i just wanted to say uh <clears throat> a couple of things about it because i think it's a really remarkable example of new worker organizing mm -hmm. um but i think one of the things that sets it apart from other kinds of organizing is these these events that happened at the game developers conference that, that mariam talks about is i've never helped a group you know helped with organizing a group of workers who've had the dynamic where there is no union there's never been a union but suddenly everyone in the industry knows that unions might be a thing and that the boss don't want you to have anything to do with them and so you end up with this thing of people never having been in a union 
really wanting one uh, and being able to have all of these conversations, which have essentially let the union kind of process just spread like wildfire, mm-hmm. um, which I can't really think of a comparable example, and I think helps to explain how this stuff has happened like so, so quickly. Um, and there's just two very small anecdotes I want to tell about this, because uh, Mariam and I met the first game worker in the UK who, uh, who wanted to start organising. So we kind of helped him along the process and we followed it uh, since, since patient zero of, of unionising <laughs> in the UK, I guess. And one of the big meetings that we first had, um, a game worker came and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really scared about telling my boss that I've joined the union, uh, but like I'm ready to do it. And I think this is an interesting example because this person didn't realise you didn't have to tell the boss. Mm. Um, but thinking that you had to tell the boss was prepared to join a union anyway and to then go into work the next day and be like, nah, like I'm in the union now, mm. like screw you, which I think is kind of astonishing. And the other one, uh, which I think is a sense of the direction of the unionisation that's happening, is a guy came to the meeting and he said, look, he came up to us again and he said, look, I'm really scared. I'm really scared about talking politics with people at work. He said, I don't know how to do it, and I don't think I'm ready. And we said to him, look, we'll talk you through the process. Uh, we'll do role play training. You know, we'll get you to that point where you can do it. And he said, you know, it's really scary, but I'll have a go at it. The next time he came back to a meeting when it was a legal trade union, I asked him how it had been going. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I've recruited like four or five people in my workplace. Like, you know, I'm a bit disappointed with it. And you kind of have this moment of thinking, for many people joining a union, as I know you've written for us at Notes From Below, is about you join a service and it does something for you. For this worker, joining a union was about having arguments at work and winning people over. Uh, he had no experience, no prior knowledge of this and so on, but to, to people who are learning what a union can mean from scratch, they have built something that is very much more like a union than many others in the UK. Absolutely, and if I may talk a bit further on, um, expand on what you're saying about the real crucial part of it in terms of uh, the difference in this in the culture of this union is that we were very very keen to really uh, bring in the social elements of, of, of organizing into this uh, into this. Uh, into the birth of this union as such. Uh, for a lot of the people, it is the first time they've heard of it. Uh, it is scary. So in order to demystify what a trade union can be, we really made sure that we did as many socials as we can, you know, little games tournaments. I think uh, the other day just went, they just went to an escape room as well, you know, like beautiful things like this to really create those social connections that, uh, that tend to then, uh, you know, give birth to camaraderie uh, that will only be carrying this union further. That's why I think we're quite keen that uh, Game of UK um, joins IWGB just because of how amazing uh, IWGB is at precisely that as well. Well, you obviously know from all of the other activism just how much incredible work they're doing, but they are extreme, you know, they are extremely keen at creating solidarity between different workers. And games industry can be an extremely alienating place, you know. Uh, workers are, are hardly seeing their, their partners, their friends, you know, so uh, depression is actually is, is, can be very high in, in, in the percentage of the workers in this industry. So uh, to have really molded, uh, you know, excitement and, and I guess, um, you know, the birth of real social relations together with trade union organizing, I think we should be extremely proud of. Uh, well, organizing should be fun. 
you know, it should be Hallelujah. something that people want to come to. Like, you shouldn't be sat in rooms having presentations about pensions that you're never going to get. You know, it should be, like, enjoyable and fun. And I think that's what's interesting about the organising, in a way, is, like, if, if people haven't seen the, the magazines produced by the union, uh, there's a bunch of them up on the website, and they're these, like, fantastic tongue-in-cheek... They're like the old uh, video game magazines that used to give you walkthroughs and uh-huh. stuff. But they're like how to beat the boss, <laughs> like co-op tactics. And it's just a sense when people can use the creativity that's maybe stifled at work and they can use that in their organising to like bring people together. It's such a, like, it's such a wonderful moment. Like, yeah, it's really nice. That, that's, that, that's a little echo, possibly, of um, one of the features of the Disney animator strike was just absolutely amazing um, propaganda that they produced around the strike and if you look at pictures of their picket lines they've got all these self-produced placards with um, uh, Disney characters on um, there's a impeccable a, fonts yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah or <laughs> perfect uh, typography there's a good one with um, Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio that says um uh, it, 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 it ain't cricket to cross a picket you know that, that, <laughs> no, that kind of yeah you know so um there's 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 a, there's definitely an echo there. So um, as as we as we record this in the um, slightly noisy and echoey uh, turbine hall at the Tate Modern, so if you can hear um, kids uh, crashing about in the background, um, that's why uh, we're we're recording this one day before um, the launch for your book, Jamie, at which you, Mariam, are speaking. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that book, Jamie, where it came from, and and what your hopes for um, having written it are? Yeah, so the book is called Marx at the Arcade, um, and it's published by Haymarket, and it's, it's out now. Um, and the book is really a continuation of that article I mentioned earlier that I wrote three years ago, saying, like, maybe this stuff will happen in the video games industry. Um, I'd been working with these video game developers and thinking about how could we think critically about this industry that lots of us don't, don't really understand or know much about. Um, and at the time, it felt like much more of a side project, uh, but once uh, Game Workers Unite started happening, it was kind of clear that actually it was worth trying to put something out that was critical about uh, video games and their role in society. And so the book really tries to do two things. The first is uh, to pitch an argument with people who are interested in games that critical analysis, and particularly Marxist critical analysis, can help them make sense of the industry and also make sense of the kind of games we play, why we play them, and so on. But then on the other side, to convince people on the left that they should be interested in video games, both as a kind of form of production, but also as a cultural form that so many people spend so much of their time on. Uh, and so there's that kind of twofold argument that runs through the book. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Jamie is extremely successful uh, in, in that. I think the timing for, for this book is, is fantastic and I really, especially, yeah, exactly like you say, I really love how you framed it, that it's just like, we have had so many books, again, even on like similar themes of like games and politics that were only for the one side of the argument, you know, whereas I think this is perfect because it really combines the two, so any uh, any enthusiast of, 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 of video games can really read this and be sold on the importance of, of not only organizing, but really understanding how this medium is, it, 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 it creates effect in real life politics. And I think any sort of judgy, uh, judgy lefty of which I've met quite a few, um, I would really recommend uh, to understand the new ways of organizing, the new important industries that we have completely overlooked. And, you know, to talk about the rise of far rights or whatnot, I would really actually um, 
I would really argue that our, ours as progressives' failure to be in the gaming uh, realm has really ha does really have a lot to answer for. And uh, so this is incredibly crucial work. If anything, I wish it was it would have been written like 20, 30 years ago as, as something that is so important. Yeah, you're, you're, the, you're the second um, Haymarket author we've uh, interviewed on the podcast. We interviewed Kim Moody around the launch of his last book. So I'm, I'm hoping if we continue in this vein, um, Haymarket will put us on a retainer. Um, <laughs> well, let's see what we can do. And then, uh, just also to say, Mariam has been a huge inspiration for the book. People should definitely follow uh, Left Left Up and the things that Mariam has been doing. You know, some of us on the left are starting to make sense of how important this is. Mariam's been doing this for years uh, and has been hugely shape the book in, in, in really, really important ways for me. Well, now, can I have a little cry? Thanks. <laughs> um, um, I just want to pick up on something uh, something both of you um, kind of mentioned there about the kind of wider political dynamics here, um, because it seems from uh, looking at the issues that games workers are organising around, that very quickly, as, as, as well as organising around issues that you know, a kind of perhaps more orthodox trade union mentality might see as the traditional terrain of trade unionism, you know, hours, pay, those very basic nuts and bolts workplace issues. There's, there's been a, a pretty strong consciousness right from the get-go around the need to organise both over um, workplace issues such as um, sexism, sexual harassment, diversity-related issues, but then also beyond the workplace around issues in terms of the gaming and politics, the political and cultural impact um, of, of games, and indeed the kind of actual content of the of the product that Games Workers Labour is producing. So maybe just to, to kind of conclude then, could you talk a little bit about that and what potential you both see uh, for Games Workers organising in terms of having an impact on that p political and cultural element of the, um, of the picture? Sure. So, yeah, I also have a little, uh, I guess, anecdote from about a year ago, I'd say, or maybe even a little bit more, when the Game Workers Unite uh, hashtag was kicking off. Uh, there was obviously also a lot of reaction from the, the I'd call them, alt-right influencers of the gaming industry, and they were terrified. They just could not deal with that. They were extremely, you know, um, very afraid for, of, of unions and, well, not afraid. They they were basically scaring that this will bring in Stalinism and or you know that um, the workers are now going to make only SJW games. You know, <laughs> completely misunderstanding what a trade union is. But this has been fascinating to me, and actually it didn't hit the mark. I would I would read through the comments, and they would be like, "Hey, but why would you?" I thought you know like no, but these workers you know they really are just suffering, and there are bosses that are really mistreating them. So their audiences were not buying this, and that was the first time I think where I really saw it very visually. The argument that we have through class organizing to really eliminate this idea that the alt right relies on completely uh, is the myth of like if only you know if only that other the migrant the woman whatnot like if only they went away i would have a materially better life mm. no it is only through class based organizing that actually um, that once material conditions improve you know and i think it, the amount of uh, support that we've been receiving uh, from people that actually say that they're politically conservative has been astonishing. To zoom out a little bit, uh, yes, uh, there has been, a, you know, in the 50 years of this industry, um, and I do map out in some of my work, really the, the, the key events where I think things have really taken a turn, 
uh, it has been a fairly, um, I suppose, well, it, it, it wasn't even a conservative space, but I think it was extremely pl- proud in its apolitical stance, let's say. But in that vacuum, obviously, certain politics have developed, and uh, let's just say, as progressives, we haven't necessarily been there. So, um, so this, you know, the, this, this, the stereotype of, and again, there are very, very particular historical points as to why that, why that is. But up until fairly recently, uh, the stereotype of the of the lone, depressed guy gamer has been somewhat true. Um, I think things have began to change around 2008 and the the release of of Nintendo Wii as such, but I mean, that's a whole other conversation. And sadly, we do have to get to the the 2014, you know, the G word. I mean, I'm not going to go into much into Gamergate. You can definitely read read more about this, but that was, I think, a very, very, very perfect um, illustration of why... um, of why we need to take the, the 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 sort of relationships that happen in the and sort of social reproduction that happen in happens in these gaming communities extremely seriously. I even say that my talks not everyone agrees with me, but like if it wasn't for 2014 and Gamergate, we wouldn't necessarily have Donald Trump as president. Not many people like enjoy this when I say this, but I, I do really uh, I do kind of kind of believe that. Um, yeah, we're things are changing now. I mean, I, I worry again about the sort of fetishization of diversification because I think it still can be very extreme, you know, very convenient for capitalism, etc. You know, as an anarcho, I still think that take those things very seriously. But um, yes, the, and on also more recently, absolutely tragically, we've seen um, the New Zealand shooter um, quoting memes from PewDiePie, PewDiePie being the biggest uh, gaming uh, biggest gaming channel on the internet and in fact the biggest YouTube channel ever and so yeah again there's a huge intersection between gaming and politics and we better look at this very very seriously or or, or sorry fascism will rise so I, I want to say two things on this really uh, the first thing is absolutely to agree with what Mariam has said and I think if, if anyone needs an illustration of this Steve Bannon um, who you know somehow has this kind of trajectory that goes from uh, running a company that farmed gold for World of Warcraft uh, and then sold it to, you know, rich white men. Uh, Through this experience, he found a kind of layer of people he thought were disaffected and he could reach out to and then took those experiences into his political organising with the alt-right and then took those into the White House with Donald Trump. And so I think when Mariam says, like, Gamergate has a direct connection to uh, to Trump's election. Of course, there are other things that happen too, but that is a connection where there's been an arena where the alt-right has developed hegemony. And I think there are a couple of ways we can make sense of this. The first is the left should be engaging in places where hegemony is fought for, won and lost. You know, in the past, people did this through other forms of mass media, other forms of culture. Somehow video games haven't been an area where that's happened. Um, I think the second is video games companies themselves have been responsible for the development of these communities. You can't establish a community and then say, well, whatever happens in it happens. It's like not our fault. It's like, you know, we're not going to steward it in any way. And this is where I think, you know, when I had these conversations in previous years and you go, what do you do about the toxicity of online uh, spaces and culture? It's like, what do you do? Like, it's a complete nightmare. 
but suddenly when you have the possibility of workers' power in the industry, you can say, well, actually those companies can't just say, we're not going to engage in this. Like, workers can say, either you do this, or we don't make the next game, or we don't participate in something. And so I think what's interesting about it is you can see how workers' power can be not the thing that can solve this, but the lever that can start pointing towards a better kind of online culture that you know everyone can participate mm. in. But also could be a place where, you know, much like how culture in the past has been spaces where alternatives are considered and critical thought develops and so on, it could be that too. The second point I want to make, I don't know if you've done a podcast on tech worker organizing uh, in the US. Not you yet. should. Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a really... We'll put it on the list. It's a really interesting uh, development. Is I think a lot of the relationships in the US between games workers and tech workers are quite close. Mm. And in a way, there's some similar dynamics. Is you know, Lots of these workers are relatively well-paid. Um, and actually, with tech workers, historically, they were well-paid, paid, paid a, around what a union wage would have been mm-hmm. to stop them having a union. Um, oh, wow, because then they wouldn't have control over production there's actually like management papers that talk about this like pay your workers a union equivalent union salary and they won't want a union and so what this means is then the questions that people want to organize around kind of short circuit those immediate economistic demands that we were talking about earlier so you have amazon workers saying we refuse to make facial recognition technology to spy on migrants or google workers saying we refuse to make drones to bomb often people in countries that they've migrated from to come and work at at these companies. And I think a similar thing is happening with games is it's true, it's not true that everyone earns a a very, very good wage. There are people who don't uh, earn good wages in the video games industry. But on the whole, the kinds of questions people are raising are about control over their work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's incredibly exciting because that can reshape the culture that's produced in various ways. Like what would a democratic video games culture look like? And then just what I want to end on is, I think, beyond the video games industry, lots of people can learn from this organising. These are literally like the example of what people might have thought unorganisable workers are like. No experience, they're involved in a culture that unions don't understand, they're young, they're precarious, like, you know, tick all of the boxes, but yet they've shown they can do it. And I think what could become a very powerful example uh, is, you know, imagine if the people playing video games learn that the game was made by people who were in a union. So, like, you know, in the US, you get, like, the made-by-union label. Yeah, yeah, the union kite mark. Yeah, yeah, yes. the union kite mark. It's like, if you can say this game is better because it was made by union labour, here's a link to a union you could... Like, you could think about novel yeah, yeah. innovations into culture that put forward working-class power in new and exciting, and ultimately, going back to what we said earlier, ways in which organising can be fun. Yeah. Absolutely, like especially in this like overly saturated market, right? Like, I mean, there's so many games, right? But if there are some that are just, you know, the free range games and whatnot, yeah, like yeah. that, that's just so much better. To so just finally kind of add to 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 to, to your points about, um, you know, the conversation to be had about the responsibility of companies uh, vis-a-vis the the communities or the content of their games. I precisely I want to make that distinction that I'm not necessarily talking about the content of the games precisely because I'm not necessarily sold on the idea that um, that the actual content is what creates a certain mm-hmm. a certain politics yeah. as as like a lover of, of, of first person shooters myself I don't necessarily think <laughs> sure, that that's, they don't make people violent yes yeah. but uh, communities sure and we should be talking about communities around games but I and I also think that's been one of the main arguments kind of 
against unions. It's just that this idea that they will then, you know, yeah, that they will change games towards whatever it is less violent or or whatever is the stereotype, right? So like I think obviously there are there are further conversations towards, you know, um, I suppose um, um, less oppressive games as such, the ones that are not just I guess um, repeating stereotypes. But I, I I don't think we should be um, stressing an idea of, of of changing the actual content. And then I just uh, I wanted to just to give a quick shout out for a project that we're running at the moment uh, jointly between Game Workers Unite in the UK and Notes from Below, um, which is a game jam. Which if people are not familiar with, it's kind of like a hack day or like a kind of people submit short experimental games and it runs our one runs over a month so people just kind of pitch in when they when they want to and so on and the theme for the the game jam um, is organizing at work so we're getting both game developers but also organizers and kind of interested people to submit ideas for how you could make a game that speaks to the idea of organizing and these are the kind of things that we think are like exciting innovations when you bring together like an industry that has some of these skills with new kinds of organizing. And, you know, why can't union propaganda be a bit different, be engaging and be exciting? So hopefully by the time the podcast comes out, it will have ended well. Everything will have, uh, have gone great. Um, and hopefully uh, people have a, have a try of some of the games. Great. Thank you both very much um, for being here. Hopefully the cacophony of um, capering children won't have uh, dr- dr- drowned out too much of that. So, um, Jamie, your bookmarks at the arcade, available to buy now. And um, Mariam, uh, obviously Games Workers Unite you're involved in. And um, where can people go to find out more about Left Left Up? Uh, just just follow me on Twitter, at MariamDid, and you can see my entire portfolio at www.mariamdid.com. And also follow Jamie as well, and Jamie Woodcock. Thanks. So you heard there from uh, Jamie and Marianne talking about the struggles of uh, video games workers uh, in the present day. Uh, earlier you heard us talking about the uh, Disney animator strike of 1941. Uh, that's about all we've got time for for this edition of Labor Days. Um, if you do uh, have any burning questions, any issues you want to raise with us, please make like JP and send us a message. And yeah, um, that's about all uh, for this month. So we'll see you next time. Labour Days was presented by Ellie Clark, Daniel Randall and Ed Mostil and produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith and our guests this month were Jamie Woodcock and Marianne Ditchcalbeet. You can find Labour Days on all your social media platforms of choice at Labour underscore Days on Twitter and Labour Days Podcast on Facebook. Please subscribe to Labor Days wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a preferably favourable review.